Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a great weekend and have had a good start to your week so far. Well, once again, we are discussing Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's Final Battle by Leonard L. Richards. And we have a very, very good um, episode um, for this um, session. But then again, the other episodes have been just as great because we've been learning so much that we didn't really know much at all in years past about this um, infamous rebellion that took place. But in this episode, we're going to learn about the revolutionary government and its beneficiaries. When I think of beneficiaries, I tend to think of uh, inheriting something, usually in the form of a will. When a loved one passes away, the beneficiaries, in this case, could be the children or the nieces and nephews, grandchildren, um, are inheriting um, an assortment of um, belongings that um, that an elderly um, family member who has passed away has provided to um, off, to offspring, not just uh, children, but to their uh, children's children, aka grandchildren. So that's what, when I think of beneficiaries. That's what I tend to think of as uh, family members inheriting. Um, belongings that have been uh, bestowed upon them once after their um, family member has uh, passed on. But in this case, uh, we were, we're going to find that beneficiaries here are the opposite. No one has dis been deceased or is getting ready to pass away, but the leaders of the uh, existing government in the post-revolutionary war era are going to be inheriting a great amount of fortune that uh, is going to cause a lot of conflict. It's going to cause um, a lot of outrage. And it's going to um, question even more about why the state of Massachusetts is in the state it is. So let's fasten our seatbelts and let's get ready. Our leadoff question is the following. What truly triggered Shays's Rebellion? I'm sure many of you all are wondering what truly did trigger Shays' rebellion. After all, people just don't wake up one morning and say we're going to rebel because we're not happy. Rebellion itself is brought along or brought on by um, actions, past actions that over time where resolution is not um, sought or where both parties can't come together to sort out their amends. Uh, that's To me, that's usually where rebellion occurs over time when uh, one side has been largely ignored. But for starters, we can't lay the entire blame on dissidents like Luke Day and Daniel Shays himself. However, the blame itself can be determined per a twofold approach. Number one, the new state government and secondly, the government's attempt to empower the few at the expense of a larger majority population in Massachusetts. Did you hear that, folks? Empowering the few, in this case being the powerful, the perhaps the wealthiest 1 to 2% of Massachusetts society, and at the expense of a larger majority, meaning those whom would never come close to attaining um, the wealthiest one to two per status, one to two percent status. 
When I think of the majority, larger majority population, those who would not fall under uh, the mercantile class, or let alone those who live well west of Boston. After all, haven't we been uh, talking about those uh, people who live, say, 100 miles or more away from Boston, or even let alone 50 miles? Yep, that's where the larger majority of the population lies in Massachusetts at this time. The insurgents didn't view themselves as dissidents, or rather, I should say, as dissident debtors. They were dissidents, but they really weren't, in a sense, dissident debtors. On the other hand, the opposition leaders had gone about labeling them so. So, in other words, the, the opposition, meaning the aristocratic elite, saw these um, insurgents as dissident debtors. But the insurgents, on the other hand, viewed themselves as regulators. When I think of the term regulation or regulate, that means to um, control how much uh, power a governing board would have over the greater population of a state or of a city. In other words, regulating meaning that you uh, restrict the rates on, say, like electricity. Um, or regulating what, regulating a percentage of, um, basically by regulating meaning that you're not, uh, it's not lopsided, whereas deregulation, it could be the opposite where uh, there's no, uh, where everything um, can be accommodated, where um, deregulation might give you more choices, but at the same time, it could also mean, say, more price gouging regardless of what um, what it is that has been uh, deregulated. But let's learn about what uh, re the term regulators refers to, especially in the 18th century. Well, the term itself originated from England dating as far back as the 1680s, okay, late 17th century. Regulators were men who came together to, challenging, to challenge a governing elite's authority, that is to challenge the governing elite's authority with intent on restoring communal order where power would become evenly distributed amongst the many versus the few. So for, the, for these regulators, when they saw that the um, ruling elite were abusing their powers and imposing unjust measures upon um, the vast majority of society who did not have a true say in their affairs, that's when the um, regulators would come together, band together, and say, hey, we're going to um, take a stand, and we're going to let the elite know how we feel, and whatever price it takes to pay, we're not going to go down without a fight. But the usage of the term regulators became more prevalent in the late 1760s in colonial America, most notably involving uh, both Carolinas, North and South Carolina. However, um, and there were conflicts in those, um, in those uh, colonies where, um, where the regulators were involved, but New Englanders alone didn't have to look southward to find uh, conflict involving regulators. New Englanders themselves were impacted by events nearby 
similar to what happened in the Carolinas involving communal restoration order. Okay, well, um, how many states border Massachusetts? Does anybody want to take a guess? Um, is it five states? Is it less than five or is it more than five? The answer is the following. If I'm right, there are five states that border Massachusetts. New Hampshire, Vermont, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island. What states um, would have been having um, conflict um, bordering Massachusetts before and even after the American Revolution? I can tell you uh, most notably after the American Revolution it was Vermont and a lot of dissidents, even Daniel Shays himself and his followers fled into um, New Hampshire and Vermont. Of course Vermont's not even a state at this time, but New York and New Hampshire are the two states whom are fighting over who has control over Vermont. But New York State, on the other hand, um, in 1766, uh, one year after Parliament had uh, instituted that infamous Stamp Act of 1765, being the rally cry for taxation without representation in colonial America, New York State had a, um, a unique conflict and because of time, I'm just going to give you um, the basic 101 uh, interpretation of this conflict. Their con that state's conflict arose around a few families whom dominated the eastern shore of the Hudson River. How about families like Livingston, Van Rensselaer, Cortlands, to Phillipses? They owned vast estates through an assortment of political connections through fraud bribery. These families were so wealthy and so well off that they refused to offer their land for sale but but instead leased their lands to, um, to newcomers but yet those newcomers were the ones forking out more money just to ensure that the um, rich aristocrats whom were owning the land got a better um, share got a better uh, share of the pie in other words they got a far greater um, they got far greater value than those who were leasing so in other words yes the Joneses could have been living on the property on property owned by the Livingstons but that didn't mean that the Joneses had that their status was improved they still remained the same status as they were but yet the Joneses were the ones having to pay rent to the Phillipses or rather to the Livingstons and the Livingstons were the ones getting recognition for still owning the land that the Joneses lived upon. Uh, Van Rensselaer, um, have you ever heard of a man named Stephen Van Rensselaer for whom Rensselaer, New York is named after? He was New York State's um, wealthiest landowner and there is a college not uh, just on the outskirts of Albany in Rensselaer, New York called RPI, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. That's named after the Rensselaer family. And then um, another interesting um, little piece of history to point out, uh, Livingston. Uh, the Livingston family, that's also in relation to um, a signer from New York State who uh, signed the Declaration of Independence. He was on the Committee of Five that comprised of um, 
four other fellow men being Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Roger Sherman, Benjamin Franklin. How about Robert Livingston of New York? So when you think of Livingston County, think of Robert Livingston and his family. So there again, those families who owned all that um, share of land along the eastern shore of the Hudson River, they were the true beneficiaries of the land, and those below them were pretty much bearing the, the brunt of having to uh, fork out um, payments to these families just so that they could etch out, etch out a living when they really weren't the ones reaping the awards or the profits. <laughs> the elite were. So whenever regulation uh, took place in the backcountry, in backcountry settings, was success always proven? Not all the time. But whenever a ruling uh, class or a group got out of control, the governed, a.k.a. people below the governing body, always had priority in rising up and restoring order to avoid an all-out war or let alone prevent complete anarchy. So hey, if you know that the um, ruling class is getting out of control, those of you below being the governed, you do have a right to um, mount your uh, frustrations. And you certainly would hope that you could avoid an all-out war. Sometimes that's not always the case. History has proven that wars resulted as a result of overthrowing a political fan of a, a political regime uh, we saw back around world war one in russia when the uh, romanovs were um, assassinated and of course many in russia did not like being ruled under a czar but at the same time um, even after the czars, after Tsar Nicholas II and his family were um, removed from power and sadly assassinated, Russia still um, did not um, improve for the better overnight. So to sum it up in a nutshell, when you remove someone from power, you better have something in place to um, to succeed, and you better better hope that whatever you have in place will last longer than than six months to a year. So to sum it up, basically in this case, it's one thing to remove someone from power, but what are you going to replace the um, deposed um, monarch or the deposed dictator with? Because after all, folks, not everybody is comfortable with democracy. Democracy is a fragile form of government. Some countries, even today in this world, don't know anything else better than a dictatorship. So not every kind of government is um, suitable for every nation. Why had Massachusetts been allowed to become so tyrannical with its governing system? Does anybody want to take a guess? For starters, the Massachusetts State Constitution was a document geared towards the ruling elite whose powers became greatly enhanced considering the document benefited only the few. Secondly, the framers who put together the Massachusetts Constitution focused their energies on placing all power, a.k.a. authority, in the hands of a single-chamber legislature. Single-chamber, folks. Okay, you know, our modern-day government is a bicameral legislature. We have a lower 
body and we have an upper body. Upper body being the Senate, lower body being the House. If you only have one chamber, one legislative chamber that is, that's a unicameral legislature. Uni being one, by being two. So why would the um, framers of this Constitution, the Massachusetts Constitution, want to uh, focus all their energies on placing power in the hands of a single chamber? Well, we will find that out here soon. And we're going to talk um, about 1778 as well as 1780, because I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of you all are going to be surprised to know that uh, there was more than one attempt to get this right. But who were some of the framers behind the Massachusetts State Constitution of uh, 1780? How about cousins John and Samuel Adams? And then uh, James Bowden, whom we've discussed from some previous podcast episodes, he would become the governor of Massachusetts. But prior to 1780, did Massachusetts leaders attempt to put a constitution into play? Yes, in 1778. And is the American Revolutionary War still going on in 1778, folks? I would hope all of you would say yes. But we do know this in late 1778. Where does the war shift its uh, direction course to? Uh, Well, before I say that, June 1778, the war comes to a stalemate in the aftermath of the battle at Monmouth Courthouse in uh, New Jersey. So the British decide that, hey, we've not been able to prevail in the northern colonies or in the middle Atlantic. Our last resort is to go southward. So we're still fighting a war. But in Massachusetts, the first attempt was in 1778. And can any of you all um, think of some uh, ideas about um, what made the 1778 Constitution perhaps a viable document? I mean, if it was so viable, why didn't, um, why didn't it uh, succeed, and why did we have to try two years later? Well, the first attempt that was proposed, being 1770, 1778, allowed all free white male taxpayers to vote for the lower house, along with letting men worth 60 pounds, to vote for the Senate, the upper chamber being the upper chamber as well as the governor. So, basically, no one is excluded from voting just as long as they meet some uh, certain meet specific qualifications. If you are, like I said, if you're a free white male taxpayer, then you can vote for the lower house. But if you are a man who's wor- worth 60 pounds or more, then you will be able to vote not only for the upper chamber, but as well as for the governor. So the 1778 Constitution proposal document, unfortunately, it did exclude women, and it excluded um, African Americans as well as Indians from voting. This Constitution lacked a Bill of Rights, but ratification process doomed the document. How did, how did ratification doom this document? There wasn't a large, broad consensus. In other words, this document never was able to attain, or obtain rather, a two-thirds majority for ratification approval. Don't we need a two-thirds? Even in uh, Congress, modern-day Congress, 
when voting on um, bills for amendments to be brought before the floor for debate, there needs to be a two-thirds majority. Otherwise, is, otherwise, if there's no two-thirds majority, then and if the amendment doesn't pass, then that amendment itself won't be brought to the floor for debate. So if you didn't get a two-thirds majority here for ratification approval, then uh, obviously this document's doomed. But most Western towns never got the opportunity to express their opinions or thoughts. Do you think they were being deliberately excluded? It could be possible, but who knows? Maybe the next go-around could be different. Let's find out. In the fall of 1779, 247 towns sent delegates to a statewide convention. And and they did agree come winter of 1780 that they would convene once again in Boston to approve, disapprove, or modify the writings that were done mostly by John Adams, Samuel Adams, or James Bowden. The answer is John Adams. Yes, folks, John Adams wrote a majority of the 1780 constitutional document. Of course, I know that um, when all of us tend to think of John Adams, we think of him as being on that committee of five that um, helped uh, write the Declaration of Independence. Of course, yes, it, was, it might have been Thomas Jefferson's brainchild uh, document, but the other four men, most notably John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, helped Jefferson with multiple revisions. Thomas, Je it took Thomas Jefferson about 80, he had to do about 86 revisions before that final document um, was approved to the greater uh, body of men in Philadelphia in uh, 1776, whom unanimously agreed on July 4th to uh, vote for uh, total separation from uh, England. But yes, John Adams, uh, being a lawyer, yes, he would have to be a very good writer, especially to be able to argue before a judge, to present his case to juries. So yes, the, uh, the majority of the writing of this uh, document, the being of 1780, was done by John Adams himself. Did a majority of Western Massachusetts delegates arrive to Boston winter of 1780? I hate to say this, folks, no. Do you believe Mother Nature could have been a huge roadblock? Yes. There have been, there have been terrible winter storms, and only one major road was open in western Massachusetts. And that road didn't even begin in the western part of the state. It, it started in Hartford, Connecticut, which is um, on the borderline between Connecticut and western Massachusetts. But that road went from Hartford to Boston. So think about this. If anybody from western Massachusetts wanted to get to Boston and had a way to go, they would have had to have gone south to Hartford and then Hartford to Boston. And for all we know, that might have taken those people a week's, at least one week's time to have gotten there, depending on just how, um, on just how durable their um, horse and buggy were, was, rather, I should say. But I will have to admit this to you all, that, um, that the convention itself had to wait uh, weeks before a quorum could take place. That is, you know, a quorum is a gathering. 
there had to probably be enough of a majority to even conduct any kind of official business. But in the end, um, you know, we had 247 towns send delegates in the fall of 1779. But in the win in winter of 1780, how, do any of you all want to take a guess at exactly just how many towns were represented? The number is between 40 and 60. The answer is 47. 47 towns were represented, with the majority of them being 10 to 15 miles away from Boston. Well, hey, if you live close, closer to Boston, the greater the likelihood that you're going to be able to make it to this uh, gathering. Those, and those present in attendance were the ones that made the final decisions behind creating the 1780 Constitution. So the closer you live to Boston, not only will you be able to make it to, to this convention, but the greater the likelihood that you can um, make, um, have your say be heard and be able to offer input in, as to how this document itself should read. So uh, besides uh, enhancing the status of the rich, what else did the 1780 Constitution establish? It established a lot of things. On you know, on paper it looked great, but I will admit that it w that it did lose its luster on uh, people whom had benefited um, from years previously until now being 1780. So. The 1780, the 1780 Constitution established a Bill of Rights, two legislative chambers where the upper house would be, was based on taxes paid versus population, and a lower house that favored the eastern mercantile towns. All right, when I think of towns around Boston that are uh, mercantile based, how about Marblehead? How about Gloucester? How about Salem? just to name a few. How about Cape Cod? All the towns around, you know, Cape Cod, perhaps like Hyannis, uh, Falmouth, how about uh, Truro, uh, Wellfleet, Provincetown, uh, just to name a few of those uh, towns. And of course, if you want to look into the islands, how about Nantucket? You know, Nantucket was a big um, village for uh, the whaling industry up until the um, early 19th century. So that mercantile economy um, in the eastern um, towns, not only just in Boston, but um, but in the eastern towns and even just north of Boston, like Marblehead, Salem, and uh, Gloucester, they are all benefiting significantly because they are of uh, mercantile uh, town status. This, uh, the Constitution of 1780 created broad veto and appointive powers for the governor. It also allowed an independent judiciary uh, to control um, the legal system to where everyday people had no control over it. I thought ju judiciary, the judiciary system was to be impartial, or what I always know, have known as voir dire, the process of selecting an impartial jury. But I do believe it's fair to say under this Constitution that um, those serving on the jury probably have to have 
have to have connections with the governor, and they also have to have connections with the mercantile economy. Because if they didn't have any connections with the mercantile economy, for one, what would they have to offer? And two, if they ruled against uh, the mercantile system, it probably would have been the last time they would have been serving on a jury in Massachusetts. How about also raising property requirements for vote for voting and holding office? Okay, how would the uh, property requirements for voting and holding office uh, have changed? Well, to vote for any state office, a man had to be worth at least 60 pounds, being 20 pounds more versus the previous colonial charter. The new constitution included a clause, and listen to this one, folks. This, this to me, I think is very unfair, but there again, it's benefiting not just the aristocratic elite, the 1 to 2 percent, it's benefiting um, the, the eastern mercantile towns, and it's also going to benefit Governor James Bowden. The new constitution included a clause forbidding any amendments added for at least 15 years. Why 15 years? Were some of these rulers afraid that if amendments got added every three to five years that, that the greater the likelihood that the uh, existing constitution would get replaced? They may have had a good reason for that, but maybe they were afraid that the vast majority of the population would, um, would engage in uh, rebellion or rebellious activities or would do things that would be so unbecoming that the state government would be in danger of uh, collapsing, all in the name of anarchists. There, are a lot, there, there could be a lot of reasons why there was fear for not wanting to add any new amendments for up to 15 years. But I think that, to me, I think that's a little too dictatorial right there. So the towns uh, where largest turnout generated for Shays' rebellion come 1786, they felt that power had been completely stripped from their hands and given strictly to the Boston elite. So there you have it. Did they have any say in this constitution, constitutional process? No. Of course, if it were me, why not have this uh, gathering in the spring? After all, folks, in the spring you can travel better. Uh, that's not to say you can still run into some um, unforeseen problems, but by spring, you know, the last of the uh, winter storms have, have ended. Roads are a lot more navigable to travel. But it might be fair to say that the elites in Boston probably did it on purpose to hold this convention in the wintertime, knowing that, that, the, that uh, people who lived 100 miles or more away would never be able to make it. We'll never know the real answers why it was held in winter versus spring, but we can certainly make all a lot of good educated guesses. Did any or all government decisions from Boston have direct impact on people living in western, Massa western Massachusetts towns, for example, like towns of Colerain, Amherst, Waitley? No, they didn't. But what took place at Western Massachusetts town meetings mattered to those people, but not so for men living a hundred or more miles away. So, you know, if you live 50 miles or more away from Boston, say Worcester being 50 miles, do you think people in Boston are going to care about the decisions being made in Worcester that ought to be addressed in Boston? No, because the people in Worcester don't have direct connections to the 
to the mercantile um, towns in eastern Massachusetts. They just basically they just don't they just they just don't see those people as being compatible. Okay, if you're from the east, you're going to come with perhaps old money. If you're in the west, they might as well view you as someone who represents new money. After all, there's that old saying, old and new money don't always um, blend in well. In most cases, they don't, but this is a situation where the state is um, facing a crisis, and the more bridges that get burned, yeah, it's going to be a matter of time before a rebellion will take place. What became um, the most distressing issue for Massachusetts in 1780? Does anybody want to take a guess at what could have been the most distressing issue? Did it have anything to do with a war debt? Did it have anything to do with um, with um, protecting the interests of the uh, mercantile elite? The answer was a heavy war debt. Of course, any of course they would always the uh, the ruling um, body would certainly want to do everything there was to protect the mercantile elite. But it's really a, the biggest problem right now in Massachusetts is the war debt. And this isn't so much, okay, incurring um, debt from, from battles fought in Massachusetts. Um, you know, when I think of Massachusetts and the Revolutionary War, we think of Lexington and Concord, shots heard around the world. We think of Bunker Hill. All three of those battles occurring within a three-month span, uh, two on the same day, Lexington and Concord, April 19, 1775, Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775, but then after the battle, you have the siege of Boston that lasted until March of 1776. So after March of 1776, Massachusetts no longer does not see any more um, open field battle uh, conflict or just ba battles in general. But there is a, a lot of debt that has been amassed, and it's been in the form of paper notes that the state could no longer honor with notes that were still outstanding. When, when a note is still outstanding, or even, like for example, if a check is still outstanding in modern day times, that means that the check hasn't cleared. In other words, the bank hasn't cleared it to where it's um, been registered in the system saying that it's uh, been uh, either deposited or that the check has, um, uh, has cleared to where a payment has been successful. Now, um, were there options behind um, resolving this problem? Absolutely. But the bigger problem is, the bigger hurdle was whether or not these, um, whether or not this uh, mission could even be achieved to begin with. So one option was to merge all notes together and pay them off later on down the road, but no exact value for merging notes ever got set. In other words, what I mean by no exact value, meaning, okay, what value are these notes going to be able to mature so that once they, um, once the merge, the merger takes place, they will, st they will still retain some decent form of face value. So the mercantile uh, controlled legislature did, rather, I'm going to ask you all this. Did the mercantile-controlled legislature ignore the real value of the note 
of the notes were. Yes, they did. Did it did it deliberately, and they went about pledging to pay what the notes were worth on the on the day they were issued. That's what they pledged to do. But this merge plan created a ma major frenzy for all parties. And I'll give you an example of one party that was really impacted by this. How about soldiers, veterans who had fought in the Revolutionary War? The majority of these soldiers weren't willing to hold on to their notes. How so? Well, it's because they lacked, they had, they didn't have any true sentimental value. I mean, they didn't have any sentimental value to where, okay, if I keep the notes longer, they will um, rise in value like stock. So in other words, this isn't playing the stock market, folks. But, and as I said a moment ago, a majority of the soldiers weren't willing to hold on to their notes due to a lack of, um, lack of value. And as the war continued to progress and last longer, personal affairs declined. How about property values dropping? Um, the, uh, how about uh, an imbalance between supply and demand of essential goods? You know, think about this. People need basic provisions to provide for their families, or rather these men needed daily essentials. And that also included needing hard money. How about silver? For, you know, like, as I mentioned before, like when my wife and I have been to Colonial Williamsburg, we see, we often come across millets, uh, Spanish coins, where you would cut the coin into eighths so that you would still have value on your coin and not have to use it all when paying off even a debt, for example, or something uh, like, say, repairing um, work on a, a fine silver uh, piece, um, silver piece that you would use to display off your wealth to guests. So these soldiers are in desperate need of hard money to be able to pay taxes. Why so? Because the paper money they have simply just has no value. It may have been valuable at one time, but as the years have progressed, those notes have, are no longer worth the same value that they were years before. As a matter of fact, many of these soldiers, when they parted with their notes, they parted with them at one-eighth or one-tenth of the original value. So that means anywhere between eight to ten percent of, of what was at the original value. So basically, these men are seeing about a ninety percent loss in, um, in note depreciation. Where did roughly 80% of Massachusetts's state debt make its way into? Did it make its way into the hands of co everyday common folks or speculators who lived in and, in and around Boston? Turns out it made its way into the hands of the speculators who lived in and around Boston, and 40% of the debt got placed into, into the hands of 35 men. And would it be fair to say that these 35 men were of uh, well-to-do status, had lots of connections? Absolutely so. And very few of these 35 men were looking after the, their government at large. Some men were market timers who bought and sold notes weekly, kind of like being like a day trader in today's modern times, or, or a stockbroker for that matter, whereas other men got involved with land speculation dealings. You know, land speculation, in other words, they're looking to invest in um, 
territory that has not been uh, claimed uh, to where they can make a, um, a, a killer profit. But at the same time, they may think they have the money, but when they uh, claim their stake on that land, those notes may not retain... They may, it may not retain the same value in their eyes, but at the same time, they'll find a way to uh, secretly manipulate the system so that somehow the, um, the, the uh, notes will um, benefit them but by doing so illegally at the expense of a larger um, population whose money values are constantly dropping day by day. I'm not an economist, folks, but I am giving you the best 101 explanation that I can provide you all with as to what was going on, because as I said earlier, and I'll say it again, this rebellion just didn't happen overnight. This is a rebellion that had, that had evolved over time. Let me ask you all this uh, question here. Who is uh, William Phillips? I'm sure many of you all don't know who he is, and that's fine. I didn't know anything about him until I read this book back at the start of the year. But William Phillips was a prominent Bostonian who had a big hand in financial in, in the financial and political arena. He served as the president of Massachusetts's only bank. Okay, hey, you know, folks, there's only one bank in Massachusetts, and where do you think that is? It's in Boston. I mean, heaven forbid you place a bank in Worcester or in um, Waitley or Springfield or um, um, Amherst. I mean, what kind of power would a bank have in western Massachusetts versus having a bank in Boston? You know, who does the, what, whom would a bank cater to in Massachusetts, given that it's in Boston? It's going to cater only to the mercantile classes and the people living in those mercantile towns. Uh, Mr. Phillips, uh, served, besides serving as president of Massachusetts' only bank, he became one of Boston's biggest speculators. He was a chief contributor of hard cash in support of General Benjamin Lincoln's army that helped uh, defend um, the uh, federal arsenal of Springfield. I found this interesting, folks. He uh, William Phillips contri uh, contributed 300 pounds which was the largest amount of money um, given to General Benjamin Lincoln's army. Of course, Governor James Bowden wanted um, 6,000 um, pounds, I believe it was, in terms of uh, raising the army. I don't believe the goal was ever met, but, uh, ben, but uh, William Phillips was a huge uh, contributor in 300 pounds. I read a stat in the book that said that that was enough to... Um, provide or recruit for 150 soldiers a month. So to have that kind of money, yeah, that's that really says a lot right there. He also had 28,000 pounds in state notes. Yeah, um, William Phillips is definitely a man of connections, and he is a big friend of creditors and merchants. Yeah, this is a guy who definitely knows um, how to... Um, get around uh, loopholes, to say the least. Did everyone, regardless of where they lived in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, know about what was going on with existing state debt? I believe it's fair to say yes, folks. Especially the veterans whom had fought during the Revolutionary War, only to have to sell their notes to speculators at lower tier prices with little to zero investment return. 
Yeah, I think that's yeah, definitely a hard pill to swallow. How did the backcountry people engage in paying their debts off? Well, if you don't have access to hard money, there is there are other solutions. How about the usage of goods? How about exchanging your selling livestock? How about performing labor? But how about also what's called barter? You know, does anybody know what bartering means? It's another word for exchanging or trading goods, okay? If there is something that I'm in need of and don't have, I would like to request it from John Smith. But at the same time, if John Smith is able to find something that I have that he doesn't have, then we will uh, negotiate a trade based upon our interests and what our wants bring to the table to to ensure that not only is a deal made, but perhaps whatever outstanding debts we may have on our end can be um, either 100% eliminated or can be or, or can be reduced so that um, those debts do not remain outstanding for longer uh, periods of time to come. So for people in western Massachusetts or in the backcountry, yes, you do have other options. They are good short-term options, but nothing that would be um, perfect for long term. Now, was the Massachusetts plan for reducing or, or eliminating the debt altogether safe and sound 100% through? Uh, no. For one, uh, the legislature wanted to come up with several hundred thousands several hundred thousand dollars in taxes before 1786 ended. Secondly, the legislature chose to pay interest on notes at 6% in specie. Anybody know what specie is? We may have talked about this before from a previous podcast. Hard coin. You know, coins like gold, silver. Okay, it's one thing to charge 6% interest, but there again, there again. What, you know, a very small percentage of the Massachusetts population has access to hard money. 85% living well west of uh, Boston? No, they don't have that luxury. Um, now, the plan to eliminate the debt ranged from 1782 to 1786, but only 10% of those taxes were to come from import duties and excises, which fell upon people who could afford to pay um, those debts, whereas the other 90% involved direct taxes on property, regardless of how well the debt plan was set up. But yes, regardless of how well the debt plan was set up, uh, the backcountry people bore the greatest of financial brunts. So no matter how well the legislature in Massachusetts tried to convene this plan, the, the brunt, the, the, the people bearing the greater brunt were those living in the western part of the state. We're going to be wrapping this up here shortly, but here's my, uh, one of my last questions for you all. Whereas uh, Governor James Bowden showed little to zero interest in backcountry people, a.k.a. Westerners, was the new incoming Governor John Hancock the exact opposite? Yes. Although Hancock inherited a mercantile firm from his uncle, and he inherited this before he even turned uh, age 30, 
Inheriting this mercantile firm made him one of the richest men in Boston. Can you imagine being one of the richest men in Boston before turning age 30, being in John Hancock's shoes? However, John Hancock chose to build a career upon popularity, which included looking after people in general, regardless of where they resided in Massachusetts. Okay? This is someone who is very open-minded. John Hancock himself provided, for, for example, he provided poor churches with free Bibles during, and during times of hardships, Hancock required only wealthy debtors to pay him back in silver, whereas poor debtors would pay him with depreciated paper notes. He wasn't interested in collecting taxes, as he had little of his own money invested in state notes. So look at it, look at it this way, folks. He knew that those paper notes had depreciated values, but you know what? He wasn't interested in chasing the almighty dollar. He had enough money on his end. Perhaps we could say that he's an example of old money. He doesn't need to flaunt what he's got. Whereas his predecessor, James Bowden, would have been the exact opposite in flaunting what he had. He lost to John Hancock because his plan for debt reform was so oppressive that many in Massachusetts would never live to see the end result due simply to not having an abundance of hard money available to pay all outstanding debts. But also Governor Bowden himself wasn't a friend to the greater masses of Massachusetts society, unlike his successor being John Hancock. I think it's fair to say, folks, that John Hancock is like the equivalent of a modern-day philanthropist. He knew how to spend his money, but doing so without flaunting it. People who have old money know where to um, use their money, but they do it in a way with class. They do it in a way where it's not always about them. It's the cause is for the greater community. It's the cause is for the greater um, state at large. And for John Hancock, yes, he knew that he had upset those, some in the mercantile business, but you know what? He wasn't afraid to take that chance. He knew that the, the, the best way to get the state back under control was to make modifications to where everybody was involved in this process, but but also that it um, resulted in nonviolent resolutions. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all soon. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about what's called banner towns and core families. Those who were at the heart, those families rather, who were at the heart of uh, participating in Shays' rebellion. That is, those families who had the greatest of turnout. Well, thank you again as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again soon. Take care and stay safe.